it was awesome to see the good work that uh, our team did down in Guatemala a couple weeks ago. And uh, thank you for your generosity as we continue to give and, and support and do some incredible things in the name of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we will be as we conclude our series called Exiles today. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see what Peter wanted to communicate when he wrote this letter. What's he been saying to us? Well, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. But this is the whole point of 1 Peter. But what does the this refer to? What is the true grace of God? Well, as we've seen throughout this study, the true grace of God is a pattern of life that looks like Jesus. First the cross, then the crown. The way of God with all his people is first suffering, then glory. Jesus walked this path. There was the death of Good Friday, and then there was the resurrection of Easter Sunday. And what Peter has been saying to us is, this is the true grace of God. For example, last week we saw in 1 Peter 4, and Nate did a remarkable job walking us through the text. We read in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So when you're obeying Jesus and you suffer for it, don't you dare think for a minute that God has turned against you. He is showing you his true grace. You are sharing in Christ's sufferings. You will share also in his glory. And here's what we do with that assurance. Stand firm. Don't bail. Don't retreat. You haven't miscalculated by following Jesus. Stand firm. If you'll remember last week, Peter pulled chapter 4 to a close in verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Peter calls us to live with complete openness to God, moment by moment entrusting ourselves into God's care while we do good. So when things don't go our way, we don't force it. We wait on the Lord for the future, and we make a positive impact in the present. So, so where does that take us in real terms? Well, what does that outlook on life, where does it take us in practical terms? A few years ago, uh, my wife Tara and I, we uh, took a trip with, with our church to Israel, and it was the first time we had ever been there, and each day we had uh, a, a full day packed from morning until dinner, but after dinner it was kind of open and, and free, and, and a lot of people went back to rest because we had been walking all day, but, but us and a couple of other couples, we used those, those evening times to explore and, and look at some things on our own, and we wanted to look at some places that weren't on our itinerary, and so one night when we were in Jerusalem, we, uh, we started walking the streets, and we went to the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which wasn't on our, on our tour itinerary, and, and so there was just people packed to the max, just flowing out of this place, and we were like, man, are, are we ever going to get in there? And this guy came up to us, and he was like, hey, you want to get in there? We're like, yeah. He's like, follow me. Okay, so 
he takes us around this back way, and we're going through these hallways and all these, all these caves, and we're like, where are we going? Where is he taking us? And finally gets to the point where he kind of does this. He, he, he wants some money to, to be our tour guide, and we're like, no, 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 we're, we're okay. But, but I, I think oftentimes as, as we go through life as exiles, we're like, God, God where are you taking us? Where, where are we going? What's our itinerary? Peter tells us four places. One, the loving place of leadership. Two, the low place of humility. Three, the hard place of warfare. And four, the glad place of promise. First, the life of an exile takes us to the loving place of leadership. Peter writes in chapter five, verse one, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. Paul starts off by addressing men who are elders. He starts there because we are trusting God together in community. The the faith in God of, of chapter 419, it's a group project, and that involves leaders. So how does Peter instruct men who are elders in this church? He shows us their focus, their task, and their tone. The focus of elders is Jesus himself. He writes in verse one, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. I love the way that Peter addresses elders. He doesn't call himself an apostle, although he could have. He calls himself a fellow elder. And what is our focus together? It is Jesus and his sufferings and glory. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that there is a conversation going on in this church 24-7? The, the people in this congregation are, are, are communicating via emails or text messages or phone calls or, or running into somebody at the store or conversations in small groups all of the time. What are our conversations about? What is it that we're talking about? It must be Jesus. Not secondary things, Jesus. And the elders of this church accept the responsibility to steward the church-wide conversation in a positive way, keeping first things first, Jesus on his cross, Jesus in his glory. He is our focus. The task of elders is this. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. He doesn't say, have meetings, vote on stuff, hand down decisions. The task of elders is caring for people, shepherd the flock. Now, yes, we do have meetings and and we do make decisions, of course, but the primary task is people. Jesus is not the CEO. Verse 4 says he's the chief shepherd. He shepherds all of us in five ways, according to John 10. Jesus knows the sheep, John 10, 14. He sacrifices for the sheep, John 10, 11. He leads the sheep, John 10, 3 and 4. He protects the sheep, John 10, 12. And he gathers in more sheep, 
John 10, 16. Right there is the task of an elder. And the way our elders do that is by watching over them. In other words, constant awareness and close involvement. Constant awareness and close involvement. It's how we create a better future for everyone who is willing to follow. Elders take responsibility to know, sacrifice, lead, protect, and gather in more people. And this is all the work of Jesus, the chief shepherd, through us. Finally, Peter sets the tone of elders. He describes it with three contrasts. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. The whole point here is enthusiasm. It's how God loves us. And setting that tone makes a church attractive. We, we all want to be loved that way. I heard former President Ronald Reagan referred to as a happy warrior where he had this aura, that this, that this uh, personality to him that, that even people who disagreed with him were attracted. And even so, we, we know that, that people do not come to church in order for their burdens to be increased. No, they come so they can be lifted up. And cheerful elders set that tone. Now, let me say something to those of you men who are not yet elders. You need to know that an elder is not a different kind of Christian. He's just a little further down the same road that we're all traveling. In fact, an elder isn't necessarily old. Paul entrusted the church to Timothy when he was a young man before some people thought he was ready. So I want to say to you younger men, God is calling you to grow and to become a leader for him. You may or may not be, end up being an elder or a deacon, but every man should aspire to lead. Now, I, I can already hear the responses, but you, you don't understand my, my, my past. You don't understand the things that I've done. You don't understand some of the, the sins that I've committed. Remember who's writing this letter. It's Peter. Peter denied Christ three times, and the Lord still used him. So if you don't think you're ready, what are you doing to get ready? If you're just protecting yourself from, from taking responsibility for the spiritual future of our community because it's going to cost you, so you'd rather just kind of sit on the sidelines, tell me where in Scripture that's okay. Maybe some of us need, need to repent and trust God and go for it. I believe every man, in fact, I believe every believer in this church ought to be on a growth track towards leadership. There's not a single one of us who've arrived. God wants to continue to work in all of our lives. All of us have next steps to take in our faith, no matter how long we've been following Jesus. Second, the life of an exile will take us to the low place of humility. He writes in verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Now, who wouldn't be safe in that social environment? 
But we just resist that, don't we? Because it's so un-American. But as we have seen, chapter after chapter, Peter continues to challenge us with this call to submit. Scripture teaches openness to the leadership of elders. It says here in verse 5, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we can't have discussions. That doesn't even mean there won't be disagreement from time to time. I believe that that candid discussions make for more solid decisions. But verse 5 does mean finding a way to make it work and not holding out for my own way. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, respect those who labor among you and are, who, and who are over you in the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13.17, obey your leaders and submit to them. So I ask, to whom do you submit to? Now, elders and members have different roles, but God wants us to share the same humility together. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, this trend that's popular, this Lone Ranger Christianity, this no accountability, this no church that is common amongst a lot of Christians today, it's found nowhere in the Bible. Where's it come from? Pride. But God doesn't want to be our opponent. He wants to be our giver. And, and, and Peter is telling us, proud churches come under God's judgment. Humble churches receive his blessing. Peter is telling us that, that our humility before God is proven real by our humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. How could it be otherwise? Now, what if God did pour out his blessing on, on proud, unbiblical churches? Well, well then we would think that, that he was somehow validating that kind of Christianity. A.W. Tozer put it bluntly, he said, it is my considered opinion that under the present circumstances, we do not want revival at all. A widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be a moral tragedy from which we would not recover in 100 years. So one of the ways that we express to the Lord that we do want revival is that we humbly come together for his sake. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon, the, the famous British preacher of the 19th century, the way that he described his feelings as a new believer. He said, I felt that I could not be happy without fellowship with the people of God. I wanted to be wherever they were. And if anybody ridiculed them, I wished to be ridiculed with them. And if people had an ugly name for them, I wanted to be called by that ugly name. For I felt that unless I suffered with Christ in his humiliation, I could not expect to reign with him in his glory. So whenever you're spoken against, whenever you're falsely accused, whenever you are, whenever you are, are, are mistreated, and there's nothing you can do about it, you can know that God is in it. Verse six reveals that, that God is bringing you under his mighty hand. It's about God, not your critic, at the proper time, he will make it right again. Keep trusting him. Keep casting your cares on him. And when other people, you, you feel like they don't care about you, you can know 
He does care about you. Third, the life of an exile leads us to the hard place of warfare. The hard place of warfare. Verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, in my ministry, I have given not a lot of attention to the devil. Say, why? Because he's not our focus. Jesus is. But whenever you go through the Bible and you're going book by book and chapter through chapter, you will see that that God will speak to us what's on his heart. And here in 1 Peter 5, what he wants to do is he wants to warn us about our enemy, Satan. C.S. Lewis wisely wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both heirs and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So scripture is clear, the devil does exist and he wants to ruin every one of us. He hates us because he hates God. So there's a reason that Peter tells us to resist the devil. But how do we resist the devil? You know, he may be more obvious in other parts of the world today For example, we see overt demon possession in in, in other parts of the world, but but Peter's not saying, be watchful unless you live in America. No, Peter tells us in verse 8 that the devil is your enemy. In fact, he's our only real enemy. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. People are not the enemy. The devil is. We have to understand this. People are not the enemy. The devil is. Dr. Anthony Fauci is not the enemy. Joe Biden is not the enemy. Donald Trump is not the enemy. Hollywood is not the enemy. The media is not the enemy. The devil is. God has called us to love people, and we are called to reach people with the gospel of Jesus. How can we reach people if we see them as the enemy? You cannot hate someone and reach them at the same time. The devil is the persecutor. And we know that Peter's thinking of persecution as demonic attack because of verse 9. You know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So Peter sees the attacks of the devil as a standard experience for Christians around the world. In Peter's day, it was Roman persecution. During World War II, it was the Gestapo, and a lot of countries today, it's radical Islam. And to be devoured in this sense, to be devoured by this roaring lion, means to give up on Jesus. It means to turn your back on him. It means to stop following after Jesus. That's what it means to be devoured, so to speak. An early Christian writer named Eusebius during the persecutions under Emperor Marcus Aurelius in the second century, he described how the devil would devour a weak Christian who denied Jesus. And then the other believers would would so love that weak and fallen believer that as Eusebius put it, the devil was choked into throwing up. 
He thought that he had devoured that Christian. But the other Christians so prayed for their fallen friend and so loved him that the devil got sick to his stomach and back out came that Christian, restored to Christ and restored to his friends. And so when Peter says in verse 10 that God can restore us, that's how far the grace of God can go. And I can't help but think Peter knew that himself. Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And after Jesus resurrected, standing on the shores of the seas of Galilee, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And Peter experienced the restorative grace of Jesus. Listen, the devil cannot harm us as long as we trust Jesus. Verse 9 says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. The word translated firm here in the classical Greek can also mean stubborn. It's a heart that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The devil cannot stop us if we are willing to pay a price to obey God. Because God cares for us like no one else can. So how do we stand firm? Well, we need the weapons of the Spirit. Be frequent in prayer. Stay connected to God. Repent and confess your sin often. Memorize his word. Keep faithfully doing the right thing. Don't just give in and go along. Fight. Here's one. Stay in community. Peter writes this letter to a community. Yes, they are exiles. Yes, they are scattered about the the, the Roman Empire, but... They're scattered and living as exiles in community. I remember hearing a story about the famous Maasai warriors in Kenya. When they're walking around with their sheep and all of the sheep begin starting to act skittish and and they see some of the grass isn't swaying with the rest of the wind, they know there's a lion. And so what do they do? Do they run from it? No. You don't run from a lion. You get together with the other warriors and you start making noise to agitate it. Then when the lion attacks, you band together. One warrior showed the scars on his chest from where a lion had attacked him, but the warrior said, when the lion fell on me, my fellow warriors fell on the lion. The lion was killed. The warriors were not. Church, we have to realize that gathering for worship and gathering for prayer and and taking communion together and, and baptism, it matters. It matters. I am so thankful for technology, and there's a lot of amazing things that we can accomplish because of it, but I am not convinced that true biblical community is one of them. You can't YouTube community, you can't podcast community, you can't stream community. It happens life on life. Finally, the life of an exile takes us to the glad place of promise. The glad place of promise. Verse 10, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever made a bad investment? 
Maybe you buy $1,000 in stocks and the stock takes a dive and a few days later you see that it's now worth $600 and all you can think about is how nice it would have, how nice it would be to have those $400 back. You ever done that? Maybe not with, with stocks, but with something else. You know, one of the most difficult aspects of suffering is the ground you lose in the process. Many times our problems, they don't only slow us down, but they knock us back a few places. And soon we discover that we're not where we used to be in life. I've heard the advice, don't look at where you've been, look at what you have left. I've probably given that advice a time or two. But guess what, it's hard. It's hard not to look at what we've lost. It's hard not to think about where we would be and what we would have if things had turned out differently. And so our mantra becomes, if only, if only, if only, and the longer we look at what we've lost, the stronger the grip of regret on our life, and it can consume us. The truth is, everyone from Bill Gates to Elon Musk loses ground from time to time. We all have setbacks. We all find ourselves at the starting gate sometimes. But God has made a promise to his people. These setbacks are temporary. Listen to Peter's words. After you have suffered a little while, God himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. What an incredible promise. Let's look at it more closely. God will restore you. He will put you back where you belong. He will bring us to wholeness, lacking nothing, complete in every way. He will make you strong. This is an athletic term. Peter's saying God will give you the muscle to do what you need to do. He will use difficulties to make us stronger, to enable us to face anything that he allows to come our way. He will make you firm. The original Greek word here means to be made as solid as a rock. So rather than being uncertain and weak, we will be resolute and determined in our faith. He will make you steadfast, which means that he will establish you on a firm foundation. He will put your feet on solid ground. No matter what it is you're going through right now, this is what God has planned for your future. One of the things I love so much about being part of a multi-generational church like this is that we have so many stories of people in this congregation who have held on to the promises of God and the promises of God have got them through. They have kept them going. And I don't know what it is that you're going through right now. But if you can hold on to this verse, God will be true to you. You know, there's our part of the gospel and then there's God's part. And God's part comes first, and God's part is bigger and deeper and all-encompassing. You need to know that. The elders here at Bachelor Creek living up to the high standards of verses 1 through 4, all of us together clothing ourselves in the humility of verses 5 through 7, and being stubborn in the warfare of verses 8 and 9, all of this is our part. And we must do our part. But I am so glad that the gospel is, first and foremost, about God's part. I'm glad because I know what it's like to be weak. And all I can do is turn to God in my need and trust him to do his mighty part. And he does.
and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for the grace that saves us, the grace that sustains us, the grace that carries us. God, you have shown us through this letter what it looks like to live as an exile. And God, I pray that we would embrace that call upon our lives. And we would know that you are always with us. That even when we struggle and even when we suffer, you are bringing us under your mighty hands. And you have given us a promise to hang on to. That even when we suffer, it's only for a little while. We know that you will restore us. You will strengthen us. You will make us strong. You will make us firm, steadfast. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you for this community. We thank you that you've given us the church. And God, I pray today that if there's anybody here today who has not accepted the call to be a part of your church, They'd say, I, I want to be a part of Bachelor Creek. I, I want to become a member here. I, I want to I contribute. I, I want to I be a part of this body. I pray that people would do that. I, Lord, I, I want to pray for, for those here who've never trusted in Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life. I, I pray that they would, would make that decision today, <laughs> that they would accept the true grace of God no matter what they've done in their past, and that we would give you glory and we would give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.